This episode of the Nerdball Podcast is sponsored by Jake Paluski at Real JP Multimedia. He does the music for this podcast. He has produced this podcast. If you need anything audiovisual done, he is the man to see at realjp.com, R-E-E-L-J-P.com. Let's start the show. Hello, I'm Kelly Wienersmith, and this is the Nerdball Podcast. is the Nerdball Podcast with Lorenzo Melcher. All right. Thanks, Kelly, for uh, coming on the podcast today. Thanks for uh, having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So I, um, I told myself that uh, I was going to do some sort of uh, research and looking up things, and, uh, and then I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's totally okay. Um, so I, I got your, um, I, I was told by, by your brother and my, my friend, George said, you should have my sister on. And then he told me what you did. And then I was like, are you, you're just now telling me about your sister and what she does. This sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he's saying nice things. That's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. He's saying real nice things. So, um, first of all, from what he told me, uh, and you can probably explain it better, but this is how I explained it to my friends when he told me uh, that you study zombie parasites or zombie zombie fungus, and I and he sent me some videos, and it looks terrifying. <laughs> it it is terrifying, and it's it's fair to call them zombies. So I don't study the zombie fungus, but I study uh, zombie wasps, which I'd be okay. happy to tell you about, and zombie sure. fish. Uh, oh, I didn't even know the these general, things ex- like, um, existed. <laughs> oh yeah lots of zombies out there yeah so so the video he showed me um and i've and i've seen other ones is is uh this fungus gets in an ant and it crawls up a tree eventually and it does a death bite it's called and then the spores just grow out of the ant and it looked crazy i didn't and i've seen videos before um but when i show people and they they or tell them they just they don't think stuff like that exists and it's uh it's pretty remarkable it's crazy. And that's one of the better examples that we have. So, so this is called parasite manipulation of host behavior, or we okay. just call it manipulation. And the idea here is that parasites can sort of hijack the behavior of their hosts to get them to do something that's bad for the host, but good for the parasite. And like that, so that fungus, if you took the, so you, you mentioned that the ant bites on a leaf. Yeah. If you take that leaf and you put it on the forest floor, little like critters like spiders will come along and eat the ant and the fungus and kill them both. And so that's bad for the fungus. And if you take that leaf with the ant and you put it too high up, then the humidity and the temperature are bad for fungal growth. Okay. And so like the ant is brought to this super specific place. It's like 21 centimeters off the forest floor that ideal for the fungus. And I'm like awful at estimating distances. My husband just like loves to laugh about how, like, how did I get this far in science without being able to tell you like what 21 centimeters is. Uh, but like the fact that this, this fungus can get the ant there by remote control is just like, it, it blows my mind. It's really cool. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll definitely get onto that into all, all of that. Um, but I do want to start with, um, did you, you grew you grew up in Perrysburg, went to Perrysburg high school. And, yep, yep. And, and I also went to Notre Dame. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so first of all, did you, I, I like asking, cause I, I coach high school football at Perrysburg and I, and I like asking kids if they enjoy living in Perrysburg. And most of the times when you're in high school, you don't really enjoy it as much as when you get out and realize like, oh, it was a pretty cool place to live. What, what was your thoughts on living in Perrysburg? I mean, that, that would pretty much be my, yeah. my, I agree. I didn't love it at the time. I can't say high school was like a favorite time of mine, yeah. but now when I go back and visit my parents, I'm like, oh, there's, there's actually a lot of trees here and it's really pretty and it's safe. And like Mr. Freeze is pretty cool. And, <laughs> uh, I think I appreciated it as much as I could have, but partly that was just cause yeah, I, I wasn't having a ton of fun in high school. Okay. Yeah. Well, I always, my, my wife's the same way. Like she, we talk about if we would go back to high school, would we? And she says no immediately. And I say, yes, yes, because I really, I enjoyed high school, but I can, I understand uh, where she's coming from, where you're coming from. And, and it's, it's not a fun time for everybody. 
Yeah, that's right. But you know what? Like I, I made good friends. People I keep in touch with still. So sure, yeah, it's good. Yeah. So, so, um, were you always into science into that even in high school? Or is that something you thought like, Hey, this is what I want to do something with this. Yeah, I wasn't sure exactly. So we had an anatomy and physiology class in, uh, that I took in high school with Mr. Asmuth, I think was his name. Uh, and we did like cat dissections. Mm -hmm. And I remember initially thinking like, Oh, this is awful. And then I was like, Whoa, there's all this stuff in here. And I was like, was really fascinated. And then he took me to the medical college of Ohio's forensic science day. Like he took a couple people from the class to that. And it was just creepy and awesome. And I was just like, Oh, I definitely want to do something science related. Uh, but I didn't end up going into forensic science, but parasites and dead bodies, they're all kind of creepy and it all works. I used to work at uh, MCO. It's called UTMC now. And our uh, shop was also, they had the plastination area there. And it was creepy and awesome, just like you said, to see like, I, and the doctor that that ran it was really good. Like if we go in there, because we had to help him move, uh, sometimes move like bodies, like in these big boxes or big things and help move things around. And um mm -hmm. And he would, if we had questions, like he would explain stuff to us and, and it wasn't was, oh, you, you work for the ground screw. I didn't need to talk to you about anything, but he was so good at explaining things and asking, answering our questions. Uh, and we could see there was a full body of just all the veins and, and everything, just all plastic that they did this plastination. And it was, it was such a cool thing to see. I, I didn't know that we did plastination, uh, like in the Toledo area. That's awesome. My, my, my first date with my husband was actually the body worlds exhibit when I oh, went yeah. through San Jose. Uh, yeah, it's, it was a creepy start to a, to a good thing, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it I, was a cool thing. Yeah. I've never been up close. That's so cool that, that he was showing you that. Yeah. Yeah. And he would explain the process because we he'd have these huge buckets of i don't know what he called it but it was ultimately what the plastic was um and like we had like again we'd have move stuff around and like the big chambers he used and all this different um i mean there was you walked through the hallway and he had all these little different models and stuff that he used to show students and stuff and it, it was pretty neat um so so after high school you uh go um you uh where do you go to college I went to uh, Bowling Green State University and I got a bachelor's and a master's there in biology. And while I was doing my master's degree, I think I taught your, your sister, um, her, her intro bio course. Okay, um, all right. You have a sister, right? Misty? I do. Misty. Yep. And I, I had another yeah. one, Martina too, but yes, it would have been Misty. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah, so I got my bachelor's and my master's and then I went to the University of California Davis for a PhD in ecology. And then I was at uh, Rice University for a postdoc for a while. And now I live in Virginia and I write books. That is so much school. Research. That is so much school. I would never, I, I have a two-year degree and I'm good. And I, you know, I, I'll do my continuing education, taking different classes and leadership courses and that kind of stuff. But how, what about school for you is like, I'm just going to keep going as far as I can go and do more. You know, I like I miss it even sometimes because it. I mean, it's just it's an opportunity to to learn stuff. You know, it's like, I, I mean, I I got lucky. I didn't have to. I still worked like almost full time at coffee shops when I was in in college to make money. But like, you know, most most of the time I was just expected to like take classes on topics that were interesting, and then just learn. And that sounded really really cool to me. And I still, I still, like, I loved working, working on a PhD. It's a lot of work and it was hard, but at the same time, it's like, I'm just supposed to read about animal behavior for like five years. And I love this stuff. It's like, I don't, and so anyway, just reading about parasites and behavior, like, and getting paid to do that, like it, it like it should count as a job was just sort of surprising to me. And I, yeah, I just, I like reading. I guess. Well, the, the, yeah. Well, that helps too. The, the way you explained, um, you know, I get to learn about stuff, basically learn about stuff that I like, you know, I think that makes it sound interesting, but I think it's the beginning part for me where it's like, uh, I don't want to take a music class right now. Um, like why, why are you making me get in this room with 300 other people for music? I don't want it. Yeah. I had to take a theater class that I just wasn't really feeling. And I like, I like theater. I like giving public presentations. I was in the theater to, or, you know, the drama program with Mr. Gentry at Perrysburg and I yeah. loved it. But like when I had to take it, it was 
I don't know. I remember thinking like, this is all pretty expensive. I don't really see how this is going to help me. But uh, so yeah, I took some classes I didn't love, but like the farther into school you go, the fewer of those classes you have to take. And the more the classes are interesting and like relevant, like organic chemistry, I've never used any of that stuff and still had to sit through it. And I have a chip on my shoulder <laughs> for that, I think. But, uh, but, you know, when you get to like master's and PhD level, it's almost all stuff that's relevant that, that you pick because you want to study it. Uh, so it's, it's more fun at that point, I think. At that level, is it just reading and writing papers? And, and running experiments and mm -hmm. like, and so I also had to teach biology classes and that was a little bit tough because like on one semester, I was on the student side of the desk. And then the next semester with no additional teaching, I was on the teacher side of the desk. And, and this was at Bowling Green where we have a teaching program. And yeah. so it, maybe it changed now, but I remember being like, I, you guys spend four years teaching people how to do this. And you've just handed me a manual and you're like, go, go nuts. And so it was, it was hard. Uh, and I didn't love that part though, like being thrown into teaching without knowing what I was doing. But, uh, but yeah, mostly you're reading and taking classes and doing experiments. I never thought about that. That is such a good point where they're like, yep, you're a student and now you're teaching. And we, like, just like you said, we gave you no extra knowledge. You just have the stuff, you know, and you got to present it to these people. That's such a weird thing. <laughs> it was, it was super weird. And I mean, I know other universities teach their grad students a little bit more, but it's mm -hmm. still like, you don't get a teaching degree before you start teaching the lab. They're like, you know, maybe you get like a couple hours where they're like, be nice to students and it's good if you're fun or something like that. And, and, you know, and then also the like harassment training and stuff like that. But, sure. but, you know, you don't get too much more than that. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it is weird that people pay tons of money for these biology labs to then be taught by people who do not know how to teach. Uh, but I mean, maybe it's getting better. It's been, I haven't been in grad school. I graduated in 2014. Okay. So it's been a while. Uh, yeah, I'll ha I'll have to see if I can track some students that I know it in school to see if that's still the case because it is a weird thing. Um, oh, I just had one more question about. Uh, oh, uh, speaking speaking of like teaching and getting in front of people, especially it sounds like you were like thrust into it. Is that something you were comfortable with, or or did you have to like uh, get used to being able to talk? Because you you said now that you you like to give give you talk to people and you and you give presentations and that kind of stuff. Is that something you had to grow into? So I, I feel like public talks and teaching are two pretty different skill sets. So when okay. I give a public talk, I'll like make the talk a month or two ahead of time and practice it 20 times. So it's all memorized. Mm -hmm. And then I can worry about my presentation, you know, like how do I deliver this joke or something? And I like sure. that. But if you're lecturing, it's like three times a week, an hour lecture each time. And you don't have time to practice that multiple times. So you just have to hope it's in your head and that you can sort of do it on the fly. And I always found that to be really stressful. And partly that's because I always was teaching a course for the first time. I've never had a course that I've taught like five years in a row where it hopefully gets easier. Um, and so I always feel like, oh, the students are gonna know that I don't have this memorized and and that makes me nervous and uncomfortable. So they're, they're different skills. I prefer public speaking to lecturing because I can memorize one and I don't have the option for the other because you just wouldn't have enough time. Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I I also enjoy public speaking. Um, and I gave a I was at in a class all day uh, for Miss Durr. She, she runs a STEM class at the junior high. And she asked if I could come talk to them about about podcasting about and end up being about whatever. And mm -hmm. I'd go through my spiel and, and be talking to them. And I think like the fourth time I've done this, I turned to her, I go, this is a weird feeling. She goes, what? I go, I don't know if what I'm saying now I said to another class, which I know I did, or I already said it to this class and I, I can't, and it's freaking me out a little bit. She's like, yep. Welcome to teaching. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, so you do stand up, right? George told me you do stand up. And so you, that's like a very different thing, right? You, you practice and then you figure out what the audience likes and you know what you're going to say, but yeah, teaching is more off the cuff. Yeah, the uh, the stand up for me is because there's many ways to write uh, what anything, even you know, for jokes. For me, I had to write every single word out, every and a the everything. I wrote everything out and then I would read it and memorize it because I tried it once without it and I failed horribly. It was only open mic, but I failed horribly, and uh, and then I realized uh -huh. like, okay, well, I can't uh, I can't just go up there not prepared, and uh, and that's you know, I, I don't do it anymore. It's it's 
way down on the list of things that I have time for, but it has helped me as far as like being able to, uh, answering questions sometimes is, it can be hard for people, especially when you're giving a presentation and you might know all the information, but you get a question like, Ooh, I don't know that one. And, and people, some people don't like to say, I don't know. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty much, I've said it here and said it everywhere. It's like, Hey, I like, if I have to say that, cause then I, I can tell you, I don't know, but I'll find out for you and, and we can get through this together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's key. And I think that's that's key to teaching also is being able to say, I don't know, and trying to figure it out. Because uh, I, I think students can tell when you're making it up and hoping you're getting it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I feel like they don't trust you going forward. And so you need to, yeah, you need to get good at saying, I don't know. But, you know, plus it's good for students to know that like nobody knows everything and there's sure. a process of discovery and sort of figuring it out together is, you know, that's that's a good skill for life. Yeah. Well, no one knows everything except for junior high kids. They know everything. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so you, you get through school, do your master's PhD. Uh, and I thought I saw in your email that are you, you're teaching currently teaching now too. Are you, you're a professor now? So I, I'm a, I'm adjunct, which is like, so I have an affiliation with Rice University. I have a Rice email address, but I don't actually teach right now. Okay. And so they don't, they don't pay me, but I, I'm writing books and this, so this, I'm working on my second book. And one of the nice things about the affiliation with Rice is that when scientists publish journal articles, they are some, they're sometimes behind like a paywall. So you might have to pay $40 to get access to this paper that a scientist wrote because a journal, you know, put it online and they're charging you for it, which to me is ridiculous because the public pays for science and the fact that it's not openly available. Yeah. I hate, but anyway, uh, if you're affiliated with the university, they have deals with these publishers so you can get the papers for free. Mm. And so writing a book, on science is much easier if you have an affiliation and can get all the stuff for free. And so, you know, Bryce and I have this deal where every once in a while I guest lecture and I work on them with some other stuff. Um, and they give me access to journal articles and let me say that I'm from Rice, but I don't actually teach there. And I live in Virginia. Okay. And Rice is in Texas. Um, so I don't want to make, I don't want to, I have a a question and it's, it's going to, it's going to sound weird. Um, but when I hear scientists, I don't, I don't picture people like you seem really outgoing and, and like to talk and all that. Like I picture just someone like put me in this room and, and let me go. Is, is that just a, like a, a thing that doesn't exist or is that, do those people exist too? Those people exist too. I, I mean, I think it, different fields have different cultures, for example. And so you might be more likely to find those people in a different field. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, there's also like, there's the stereotype and then there's everybody else. And so okay. I, I think there's right. a lot of people especially a lot of people in ecology or who study like animal behavior, who just sort of geek out about this stuff and love the chance to talk about it. And so it might be for a lot of us, if you ask us about anything other than our science, we will shut down and have nothing to say. But, (laughs) uh, but but, yeah, I like to think that's not the case for me. But but yeah, I mean, a, a lot of us get into this because we just like, our dorky hearts love wasps or something mm. like that. And we would talk about it all day if you gave us the chance. Um, are there, are there scientists or some scientists who believe like, um, the thing we're doing, this part of science is better than other science. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Oh, it does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the physicists, not all of them, but a lot of them feel like, you know, biology, like physics is up here and biology is here. And every once in a while, a physicist will like come in and have something to say about biology because they think they figured it out in an evening over beer because biology like if you understand the nature of the universe clearly you understand all of biology uh and you know freeman dyson is like so he passed away recently but he's a physicist who in my mind is sort of famous for doing this he'll okay. he'll you know say like oh i figured out this biology problem y'all have been grappling with for decades and you know the answer was easy and then he also was like, oh, climate change, we don't have to worry about that. As though he had, you know, the climatologist who had been studying it for decades and decades and decades hadn't figured it out, but Freeman Dyson figured it out in an afternoon. Um, and, but anyway, there's there's also biologists who think they're better than other fields of biology. This is, you know, humans are always trying to hierarchy, you know, put things in hierarchies, unfortunately. Well, there's always clicks everywhere you go, right? That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um. So now you're, uh, I, so you, and you, you, you said you're writing a second book. What was your first, first book? See, I feel like, uh, a, so I feel like a, first... 
a bad interview interviewer when I'm like, hey, what'd you what was your book about? <laughs> like I should no, know. No, no, it's all good. <laughs> no, no, we're we're just we're having fun. Fun is yeah. So my first book, um, so my husband, I wrote this book with my husband. Uh his name is Zach Wiener Smith, and he's a cartoonist. Okay. And he uh so there's this cartoon that he doesn't write called XKCD, which is like this nerd cartoon that all the science nerds really love and he wrote a book that did really well and his agent was like okay who's the like next nerd cartoonist down on the ladder uh who who might write a book that could do well and that was my husband and so he writes a comic called saturday morning breakfast cereal and so my husband got approached about writing a book and he was like, well, you know, my wife and I, we like doing projects together and she's really good at research and like together, I think we could write a really good book. Mm-hmm. So we decided to write a book about emerging technologies. So we wrote a book called Soonish, 10 Emerging Technologies That'll Improve and or Ruin Everything. It's a long title. Uh, <laughs> and it did, it did well. And so he did like comics to sort of illustrate it and he's funny. And so he like wrote jokes throughout and I did interviews and, um, and so that did pretty well. And so we, we published that book and now we're writing a book about the future of space settlements and sort of like, you know, human bodies and how they respond to space and what space law says about whether or not we can even start settlements. Did you know there's space law? There's space no, lawyers. I <laughs> it's crazy. I didn't know that either. We started researching this book and I was like, that sounds like something out of science fiction. I, I didn't believe it existed until I interviewed one, but, but it's a thing. But now there's space force now, I, I guess make, there is space law. Someone has to enforce that law, right? And there. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, the 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 uh, illustration part of it, I think, uh, is a is a cool detail because it'll it should or, or it, it probably did draw more people in uh, to to want to learn about this stuff because everyone likes pictures, right? Pictures worth a thousand words, so everyone likes pictures. Um, so so it, it it helps people understand which uh, w- what people might not get by being able to see something. I, th- I think that's a cool feature or cool part of the book. Yeah, yeah. I, and so it, I think that one, it helped because he could sort of die illustrate stuff to make it easier to understand. And then he also put jokes in there. Yeah. And some of the stuff we were trying to explain is a little tough and it's nice to break it up with a laugh. And if the joke sort of like builds on the knowledge, it almost feel, feels like you're in an inside joke. You're like, oh, I just mm. learned that and I already got the joke. <laughs> and so, uh, but it, 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 it was funny. So we got to do um, an interview on NPR. And because my husband mm. did the artwork, they assumed that I had done all the writing and he just did like the cute, like just cute art to support my writing. And so usually, so my husband is, is a pretty well-known cartoonist. So most of the time when we talk to people, they're like, you're married to Zach. And everybody's like excited about Zach and doesn't care about me. And so it was this funny sort of like different situation for once in my life where people were like assuming that I was the exciting one in the relationship. <laughs> and so uh and anyway so now if stuff like that happens i explain like no no zach did the research also and did the writing but for that one moment well one moment in time i really enjoyed uh taking the spotlight for a moment sure uh, that, that i anyway. mean spot, spotlight makes everyone feel good i, I know my my yeah. sister my sister who's she was a grade a grade behind me and she would always get mad in high school because everyone would come up to her well first of all they called her little lorenzo but she hated that uh, and then they'd always come up to her and like, tell, tell her things that I did or said. And after a while, she was like, I don't care. What, is, what are you doing to me? <laughs> what? So, so that is how it's supposed to work. I feel like with sibling hierarchies yeah. where like, you know, if you're following your sibling, everyone's like, Oh, are you, you know, the older siblings, brother or sister? Yeah. That's not how it worked for me. Cause George's <laughs> personality was so big. That it, you know, eclipsed. And so even though I was older than him, people would be like, are you George's sister? And I'm not supposed to work that way. But yes, I'm George's sister. Uh, but that's fine. He's, you know, he's just, he's just a ton of fun. Everybody knows George. That, uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. I never thought about that, but it makes sense when you explain it. And also, this would be like the 10th podcast where his name is mentioned. So I, I joked with him. I joked with him that I'm going to start calling any all of my podcast fans Georges or George Smiths. Those are my, the name of my podcast fans. <laughs> Have you had him on the show? No, he says he's he's uh, too busy. <laughs> oh, all right. I wanted to start one 
uh, with him about about parenting and soon to be parenting, and and he was just like, ah, I can't, I you know, I, I got a lot of stuff going on, and I try not to push it. You know, I said, okay, that's fine. Uh, plus, that time difference is a killer for anything like this. Yeah. Uh, trying to find time, but I I I do at least once once every couple of months. I'm like, hey, you got to at least come on, and we don't have to talk about anything. We just talk, you know, whatever. And so, but he he listens, and and he. Uh, he is one that, you know, he obviously told me to contact you, but he does say, Hey, this is a good one. And I like, I like it when he texts me and say that that was a good interview. I liked it. Ooh, you should think about interviewing this person or he does give me ideas and he's super engaged. Now I would like to have him on it at some point too, but eventually he's, he's super creative and super hilarious. So yeah, yeah. I, I hope yeah. he finds time to come on the show at some point. I told him if we lived, uh, closer together we would probably do something like like this or something all the time because we uh we spend a lot of time talking to each other we'll talk, call each other on the phone or, or text or whatever and we always have these ideas of things and oh you should do this or you should do that we'll talk back and forth and and we just can't ever get together because uh, he lives all the way out west so eventually yeah the three hour time difference it's, it's tough <laughs> yeah yeah the uh yeah. When you're when you're talking about giving presentations and including jokes, that's one of my favorite things to do because I've been in so many presentations where it's just here's the information. Sometimes uh, the worst is when when people just read things off of the of the uh, PowerPoint we're looking at. Like just yeah. we're also looking at that. Why don't you give us extra information or just like gloss over the stuff and and get to what you need or whatever. Um, but my, my mom, my mom is really good at giving presentations. She works for the Northwest Ohio Safety Council. She gives boring presentations all the time because of the, not not she's boring, but the material, but she's really good at it. And mm -hmm. people constantly say how good she is. She makes jokes and all this stuff. But I think that's important to have that extra little thing because it it gets in people's minds like, oh, this is, this is an important conversation, but it, it gets them to focus. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, this is another thing where like, you know, so scientists, we have to teach without being taught how to teach. And we also present without really like presenting is a skill in itself, you know? And it, and one of the reasons I feel so lucky that I went to Perrysburg is because I, so I was on speech team and drama and the, the you know drama club. And in both of those, they like drill into you. You need to practice this. Like every presentation you give mm -hmm. is a performance. And so you need, you should like memorize the jokes and memorize the timing. And like, I've been to so many conferences where people, like if you get them afterwards and you give them a beer and they're telling you about their research, they're so animated and excited. But when they're up there, they're like reading off the PowerPoint yeah. and their voice is always staying stable and it's, they don't sound excited. And you're like, well, if I, if you were bored, why, why should I not be bored? Uh, and, and I, I think it's just, if you haven't practiced a bunch of times, your brain is working so hard to be like, all right, what am I supposed to say next? That you can't let your enthusiasm show through. Mm -hmm. uh, or some people, you know, just get stage fright and there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, although I do think practice helps with that. But yeah, uh, but yeah, it's somebody who like sounds like they're excited and like isn't reading off of a PowerPoint presentation and makes a joke sometimes. Like I, I hope you remember what they say more than the people who, you know, sound kind of bored. <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a i like that statement We're like uh you sound bored so i'm gonna sound, i'm gonna be bored that's good i like that yeah right <laughs> yeah i'm gonna escape into my head and think about something else because if you're not, not interested in this i don't know why i should be interested in this like that feels like the minimum for a presentation is you should sound interested <laughs> in what you're saying yeah but but again I, you know it takes practice and people get scared and, do yeah. you have a a when someone asks like hey come give this presentation do you have like a favorite presentation that you that you like to give or is it is it about the 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 wasps i i do like talking about the wasps yeah so i i, I gave a talk for iowa city darwin day last weekend and they, i got to talk about uh parasite manipulation of host behavior and then i also really like watching zombie movies okay and so i have this talk where i talk about like okay so in zombie movies you see this a lot and does that match up with what you see in nature when animals are manipulated so for example uh you know, like if you are, if there's a bunch of zombies and you're trying to figure out how you're going to get away from them and you're like hiding behind a tree, the zombies are usually like moving very slowly and sort of lumbering around uh, what happens to the activity of animals. And it turns out that when animals are infected by parasites that uh, need 
one host to get eaten by the next host. So for example, mm -hmm. I study a fish where a parasite lives on its brain. And if, if it wants to get to the next host in its life cycle, a bird needs to eat that fish. Okay. And that's how the parasite gets where it needs to go. Uh, and so there's a lot of these kinds of connections in nature where parasites change the behavior of their host to try to get them eaten. Mm -hmm. uh, and like, it turns out that in a lot of those, what's happening is they slow the animals down and they sort of make them like lumber around sort of like, you know, zombies sort of brainlessly. And that seems to get them more likely to be eaten by, by birds. Uh, and so, so anyway, I, I like talking about parasite manipulation. That's probably my favorite topic right now. But I think when I start talking about space settlements, when the book comes out, I'll like that too. I, that, that I heard that, um, same thing, like a parasite, like that one ultimately wants to get into a cat will get into a mouse and basically the mouse loses all fear seemingly loses all fear of cats and basically like you said hey i'm here eat me so that is a super complicated system that actually that gets way simplified when it gets explained in sure the news. I'm, I'm sure and so, <laughs> yeah and, and so it, what's supposed to be happening there is that the the rodents uh instead of being afraid of the smell of cat urine so in particular, this is about the smell of cat urine. Okay. So instead of being afraid of that smell as like a cue that like predators live here, uh, they're actually attracted to that smell. And if you like do, you know, scans of their brains, like the part of their brain that is, you know, shows fear stops lighting up and the part of their brain that's like, would be like attracted to mates or something lights up and they're like, oh, this is great. And so they, they're supposed to spend a lot of time around cat urine. And we think that that gets them eaten but nobody has actually shown that because none of us feel comfortable setting up experiments where cats go and kill rats because they're both fuzzy and cute. And so nobody wants to, to do that. And so we haven't actually proved that this connection does the thing we think it's going to do, but it sure sounds like it should, but some, you know, some strains of rat, when you infect them by the parasite, don't show this attraction mm -hmm. to cat urine and some of them do. And so it actually is this like hard to understand. We don't know why you see it sometimes and why you don't. But the story gets simplified when it goes into like, you know, the popular press. Uh, it's actually something that we're still trying to work out, I would say. So you're telling me there's not one evil scientist out there that's they're willing to, to set up this experiment to know for sure. So I, there's probably one evil scientist, but the problem <laughs> is we have committees that have to approve our work oh, with animals beforehand. Okay. And All so right. that one evil scientist probably can't get through committee. But there, there was this interesting study. Um, so there are these people who study spotted hyenas. So mm -hmm. I didn't do this research. I'm talking about someone else's. Okay. And they've been following these hyenas for 30 years. And every once in a while, they'll dart them and draw blood and they'll sort of track their behavior over time. And by drawing blood, they can find out if the hyenas are infected by this parasite. And then they look to see if the infected hyenas are more likely to get killed by lions because lions are cats and that's yep. the next host in the life cycle. Mm. And it turns out that when they're cubs, like when they're, when the hyenas are young, yep. if they're infected by the parasite, they get closer to lions and they're more likely to get killed by lions. And so that's an experiment where like nobody had to set up animals to die. We're just sort of watching what happens in nature. And that's sort of the best evidence we have for the parasite, maybe changing behavior in ways that get it eaten by the cats. But this has nothing to do with the smell of urine yeah. and the effect goes away when the hyenas get older and also lions kill hyenas but don't eat them so it's not clear that they're actually getting infected they just sort of kill them so that they i don't know maybe so they have fewer competitors mm -hmm. um but again it gets complicated and the best we can do is sort of observe what's happening in nature because we aren't comfortable doing these experiments in the lab so did you pick wasps and fish because you are more comfortable killing uh, setting up experiments where you're not the thing isn't fuzzy yeah that is part <laughs> of it and then I would, yeah and, I would and imagine. also like yeah i mean toxoplasmosis uh you know that's a disease that humans can get to and okay. so so the parasite we were talking about is toxoplasma gondii and i wanted to study something that couldn't infect me hmm. uh and then also like if you tell people you study wasps they want you to kill them and so like you feel a little bit less bad because everyone hates wasps. Uh, but the the wasps that I study are actually super tiny. So can I tell you about the wasp that I study? Please. Yes, please. Okay. All right. So um, so I study two wasps. One kills the other. And so the first wasp, the host, host wasp, 
uh, is a cynipid gall wasp. So sometimes if you see an oak tree, mm -hmm. you'll see that there's like weird growths on the leaves or on the stems. There'll be like, it almost looks like a wart is growing on the tree. Uh, that can be caused by fungus and viruses, but it can also be caused by wasps. And so they lay, like a mom wasp will lay an egg and it will sort of manipulate the tree into making this compartment that the egg will develop inside of. And that compartment is lined with nutritious tissue. So the egg will hatch and then the wasp will like eat all of this delicious plant stuff. And then it hides in this little compartment. And when it becomes an adult, it chews a hole out and goes off to complete its life cycle. So there's a bunch of wasps that do this. And the one that I study is the crypt gall wasp. So it lays, which is a great name. And so it lays its eggs in stems and the kind of gall that it makes is called a crypt. So it's sort of cryptic. It's hard to see. It's just this like little compartment inside of a stem. And when they are done, they chew a little hole out. And so if you see stems with these tiny little perfect holes in them, they've got wasps that have emerged from it. So that's, that's the host. Okay. And then there's a parasitoid wasp. And what it does is it walks along the stem and it figures out that there's a crypt beneath. And we don't know how it finds these things because they're very hard to see. It could be that it smells it. It could be that they like feel vibrations of the insects moving inside. We don't know how they figure it out, but they do. And then the mom parasitoid lays an egg inside of the crypt with the host wasp that's in there already. And then the host wasp is manipulated into making a smaller than usual emergence hole, but it doesn't get out. It makes this tiny little hole and it's sort of like peeks out with one of its eyes and then it never moves again and the parasitoid eats its insides and kills it and which is super creepy and then when the parasitoid is done emerging it eats a hole through the host's head and emerges to its head uh, which is just incredible and so so we uh my collaborator at rice he's he brought this stem back from the lab and he noticed all of these little like eyes sort of peeking out from the stem and he was like What's going on? Usually these wasps come out, they don't get stuck. And he noticed that there was, a, if you like dissected these crypts, there was this other wasp in there in every instance where they looked like they had gotten stuck. Uh, and so then he called me in because I studied behavioral interactions in, in this these situations. And he was like, is, is something weird going on here? And so we decided, well, what might be happening is that the parasitoid is making the host create an emergence hole because it can't get out on its own. Hmm. And so like the process of chewing through the stem to get out is actually kind of hard. You have to have like really strong mouth parts. So we put a tiny little bark over those heads that were sort of peeking out. And we discovered that the parasitoid couldn't like could almost never get out on its own. So yeah. it couldn't chew through just a little bit of bark. So it was three times more likely to die trapped in the crypt if it had to get out on its own. And so it looks like they essentially get the host to make an escape route and then they kill the host and eat it. Uh, and then they escape through its head, which is super creepy. And the parasitoid had not been described by science. So we got to give it a name. We called it the Crypt Keeper Wasp because my mom used to like yes. tales from the crypt. That's so good. Uh, and that was super fun. Um, and then we named it after, we had to give it a scientific name too. Mm -hmm. And so we named it after uh, Set, who was the Egyptian god of chaos. And he trapped his brother Osiris in a crypt and scattered his body parts around afterwards. And if you dissect these crypts, the, after the parasitoid has eaten the host, it's sort of like its body parts are all over the crypt. <laughs> and we were like, oh, this is perfect. And uh, so anyway, it was, it was super fun getting to describe a species and then discovering that it like seems to be manipulating its behavior, the host post behavior. Uh, so, and this was all happening like on the trees outside of our offices sure. and nobody had seen it before. There's so much stuff that remains to be discovered. It's very exciting. So I, I would imagine there's some people now, now that's, uh, that is super exciting and it's cool. And, and, uh, to know like all these things are just like right outside, you know, that you, you, you don't even know you're seeing, but I would imagine people, uh, will ask you like, why are you looking at these things? Yeah. So that, that's, that's a totally reasonable question. Mm -hmm. Uh, so do you, you mean why, like, how does this benefit humans? Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, someone would probably say like, what is, 
what well it's america it's like what do i get out of this like what <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah so so the the canned answer that i usually give for that is uh so let's go back to my fish because it's a little easier to explain in the fish mm-hmm. so uh in the fish there's this trematode that lives on the fish's brain and it seems like what it's doing is when the st- fish gets stressed out the the fish's brain signature. Okay. So when a fish gets stressed out, there's certain chemicals in a certain part of its brain that start like amping up in concentration. And that's how they respond normally to stress. Mm -hmm. When they have these parasites on the brain, that stress response gets like way pressed down. And we think that what's happening is that the fish is not responding to stress the way it should. And that's, that gets it eaten by the next host in the life cycle. And so parasites have been living on these fish's brains probably for millions of years and through the process of natural selection they've sort of they they've been like tinkering with the way the brain works over all this time and so you know we are we as neuroscientists are sort of new to thinking about how the brain works mm-hmm. whereas these parasites have been sort of tinkering with host brains for a really long time so if you can bring them into the lab and see like okay this parasite understands how stress works and this is like a very anthropomorphic way of saying it Mm-hmm. But if we can understand what it's doing, then maybe we can understand how brains work better. And so uh, we got funding from the Norwegian government, because I have a Norwegian collaborator, uh, by arguing that maybe one day this will help us create an anti-anxiety or an anti-depression oh. depression drug by figuring out, like, is, does this parasite make a specific compound that slows down the stress response? And for some of us who are, like, overstressed and are worried about stuff we shouldn't be worrying about, maybe these drugs will help sort of calm that stress response down. Uh, and so in general, studying how parasites are able to control host behavior, uh, if we can understand that, maybe we'll have a better understanding of how brains work and how behavior works by figuring out what's going on in these systems. Because uh, often we think that a parasite is making a compound and maybe we can make that in the lab and we can do something useful with it. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing, you said it a few times, is when you say, we think this is why they're doing this or we think this is what's going on because that's what science is right we think this is happening so we're going to test it it's not happening okay well then now this is what we think and and all all that uh, i say that because that's the past two years in our pandemic uh people get all up in arms about well they said this and now they're saying this like yeah that's how science works like we're figuring these things out and and i love that you say that like hey we think this is happening we're going to test it and, and figure go from there. And I, I love that, that you say that. Yeah, thanks. It, it has been so frustrating through the COVID pandemic watching like, you know, because people do, in a lot of cases, look to scientists for answers, but like, don't under don't necessarily understand how the science process works. And so like, I think, you know, initially, we thought that, you know, COVID was being passed on like cardboard boxes. And so you needed to like wipe down the cardboard boxes when your Amazon package came, for example. And then it turns out that that's not how it passes. And, you know, the reason we know that is because we collected more data and, Mm -hmm. but every time the answer changes, you know, like I've talked to people who are like, no, 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 scientists have changed their mind too much. I don't believe it. I'm just doing what I think is right. And it's, and I get, I get that because it's frustrating, Mm -hmm. especially with something that's controlling so much of your life. You know, these like, you know, people, you, you have to wipe down the boxes. That's a huge pain in the rear end, you know? And maybe you, every time you go to the grocery store and you get stuff, now you're scared. Like, did I just bring COVID home with my macaroni and cheese? And like, uh, I can get the, I get the frustration, um, but it would be nice if more people understood how science works so they could know like, this is, the answers are gonna change, but hopefully they get better over time or more accurate over time. Um, but yeah, science is a process. And that can be frustrating, but it is what it is. Sure, sure. Uh, let's go back to your your wasps. I don't want to lose sight of that. Um, so now you you figured out that this wasp um, needs needs the uh, this hole to get out because it can't get out on its own. Um, so where mm-hmm. where are you at now with like uh, with that particular wasp? Is as your is your work done with that one? Like we figured all these things out. This is what's happening. Or is there more things that you're doing with this particular wasp? So at, at the moment, I'm not doing much, but I'm hoping to get back to it. I've been pretty okay. busy with uh, the book project right now. But so um, so uh, this other, this PhD 
student named Anna Ward uh, found out that this wasp is actually manipulating a lot of other species. And so it's it's on lots of different oak trees. It's manipulating lots of species to do sort of the same thing, chew the hole for it. Uh, and so we're just sort of trying to, so that, that suggests that the way the parasite changes the behavior to get the host to start chewing this hole must be something pretty general if it can pull this trick on lots of different species. Sure. Um, so we're trying to figure out how it does that. And then I'd also love to know how, how does the mom parasitoid wasp find the other wasps when they're hiding in these like little hidey holes? Uh, and partly that's like finding the right people who can like measure chemicals that come off of trees. And then also this wasp is amazingly iridescent. So like oh. if you put it under a microscope and you change the angle of the light, it like change co changes colors. It goes from like a purple to a blue, to a green, to a yellow. And like, why does this wasp that lives in darkness for so much of its life need to be this like beautiful color? Like I showed it to my mom and she was like, I would love to have jewelry like that. And I was like, yes, me too, they're gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, and so just trying to figure out why, why they do this. Cause there's a lot of wasps that spend most of their lives hidden inside of trees that are these beautiful colors. Uh, and I'm just trying to figure out why they bother doing that uh, mm -hmm. is another thing I'd like to answer. But but right now I'm I'm yeah mostly writing books. Uh, it's cool that uh, when you when you first explained the wasp, it, it came from someone else saying, "Hey, you know more about this than I do. Look at this." Uh, you said it again, where you're like, "Yeah, we got to get somebody who can measure all this stuff." I think when people think of scientists, they think like, "Oh, that they, they work by themselves or maybe with one other person." But it sounds like with this thing, you've worked with three, four, five different people that know different things about this whole process. And you guys come together to, to focus on this one thing. Oh, yeah. It, one of the things I love about science is you get to make like tons of science buddies because everybody like science is so complicated. And over time, you sort of specialize on like small, narrower and narrower topics that to answer a question well, you usually have to work with other people. So my friend Scott Egan was the one who like, collected these stems. So he's, he likes gall wasps in general, and he always has Ziploc bags in his pocket because he never knows when he's going to see a cool gall and need to collect it and study it. And so he just always has Ziploc bags. Um, and so he brought one back and then he brought me on the team. And then we brought Andrew Forbes on the team because he's like an expert in identifying these species. And then we pulled our buddy, Miles Zhang onto the team because he is a macro photographer or micro, he, oh. who pho he photographs very tiny things. And to identify these things, you need to like know the vein patterns. And so that when you think of wasps, you usually think of like yellow jackets or something, but this wasp is so tiny, it like can fit on your pinky nail uh, with room to spare. And so we needed to get a, a photo of a wing for on a super teeny tiny little wasp. And so we brought another guy in uh, with his butt with Ryan Riddenbaugh, this other guy who also does, they did the photos. Um, and so, yeah, like lots of different experts were needed to get this complete picture. And yeah, like one of the great things about science is you get to make, meet new people with new skill sets. And sometimes that's not great because, <laughs> you know, not everybody <laughs> is nice to work with. But, sure. Yeah. Uh, but I've met lots of great people that way. And in particular, the team on this wasp project have all been like, amazing people it's been super fun to get to know them so yeah science is actually a very social activity a lot of the time yeah that's that's awesome because i think while well, I, I try to do it with my kids uh my, well my son specifically he he's on he likes to play Fortnite, so he's talking to his buddies uh i'm just glad like he's trying he's I, I don't know if they're conversations he's just talking about the video game but he's talking right and that's what i want like don't just stare down at your, he doesn't have a phone but don't just stare down you know with whatever you're looking at like have conversations with people so i enjoy that he does that i've also been he's 10 mm -hmm. i've been working uh, working with him like when people ask you questions like answer the question i know you're 10 you, you can give one word answers but at least answer the question don't just stare at them or do whatever as, as be social and i think it's that's important so if you can get all that especially with you in particular you're all coming together with something you'd love to do so that just makes it even better for everybody you know yes we're social uh we're coming together but we also love this thing so you're even more excited about it so i'm hoping like i tell kids like find something you really like to do because it, it just makes it so much better uh for yourself and for people that you bring in to this thing yeah that's one of the things i wish i could have told 16 year old kelly like mm -hmm. When you become an adult and you find a career, you're going to be surrounded by people who like 
the same things that you like and it will be like easy to find your your group you know like easy to find the people who understand you and like and yeah so it's I and I try to explain that to my kids too and then oh, my daughter she's eight uh and so I've been working on not just getting her to answer people's questions but to also then be like and what about you like if they ask yeah. how you're doing you also need to ask how they're doing because it's got to be a two-way thing. Uh, but it's surprisingly hard to, to teach kids that. I'm sure the pandemic hasn't helped, uh, but I, I think she's getting a little bit better about stuff like that, but it's hard. That's a good point. I, I didn't think about that. I'm going to start working with him. Like, hey, uh this is like you said it's a it's a two-way street here you know and and all these base level questions are what people ask at a class reunion anyway so let's let's hey how are you doing um i'm good how are you doing perfect that's let's end it there with everyone won let's go let's get out of here you know so hopefully <laughs> hopefully right. we'll get that way <laughs> uh yeah. so let's let's uh let's get to your new book you're writing about uh space um and first of all how did you say like, hey, we're going to write this book. So we, um, so like, I, I am uh, always afraid. I have this like perpetual fear of boredom. And I like to constantly be doing like very different things so that I never can get bored. Uh, and space is a thing that I've always been sort of interested in, but I also have like an obsessive personality. And if I start something, I want to really get into it and it's not worth it to me to just get into it a little, I need to go all or nothing. And so, which is uh, good for, is something uh, which is good for a scientist, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like to think it's not a great feature overall, but I like to think it's been good <laughs> in, uh, in my career. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so like, you know, so my husband was like, you know, wouldn't it, it would be fun to think about how polar expeditions, like early era, you know, trying to get to the first, the South pole first, uh, what lessons you can learn from that that might be helpful while we try to settle space. And I was like, oh, that, yeah, that would be fun. Mm -hmm. And so we like sort of got excited about sort of trying to understand what it's going to be like when we settle space. And we read all of these stories about polar expeditions and the stories were like totally epic. Uh, and at the end, after reading like, you know, 50 biographies and stuff like that, we decided actually there's nothing here that NASA doesn't know already like all of the lessons are pretty obvious things like you need to plan to bring enough food the food needs to be shelf stable you should make sure the people who are going are mentally stable there's a story about a guy who was sort of young and developed schizophrenia when they were all sort of stuck on the ice together and it was a scary situation um but anyway so then we just sort of got interested in like well how do human bodies respond to space and like what are the main problems and how well do we understand it so like for example uh, what do you, what do you think? Do you think we know about space radiation and whether or not it causes cancer? Um, I would, I would think, no, we don't. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I thought, yes. I just, I just assume, um, and, and this is just me, but I just assume if I haven't heard about it, um, that then enough people don't know about it. So I just, I, I get where you come from. Like, yes, radiation, any radiation would cause cancer, but I just, my, and my thought was like, well, how do we even know where, like, for, I never even heard of space radiation. So I, I wouldn't even know that that thing exists. So your, 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 your way of thinking about it was way more correct than mine, to be honest. So, I mean, I thought like the International Space Station has been up there for like 20 years. We've sent 600 astronauts to space almost. Like surely we figured some of this stuff out, yeah. but it turns out that the International Space Station is inside of what's called the Van Allen belts, which protect you and I from radiation also. And so the kinds of radiation you get in space are different than what you get on earth. And we actually don't know if they cause cancer or not, because it's hard to study and we haven't had astronauts exposed to it. And it's hard to do experiments with rats on earth that do a good job of simulating space radiation. So like people talk about starting settlements on space, but we don't even know if you can survive with space radiation. And so I, to me, the whole field is like way farther along, way less far along than I would have guessed. Mm -hmm. And so the book is just sort of about like, what, what do we know and what do we not know about wh whether or not humans can survive in space and whether or not it's legal. And it sort of grew out of this initial interest in explorers and other areas, which ended up sort of not going anywhere. Uh, and so I feel like an important part of science is like going in one direction and then being, being willing to accept, I made a mistake, there's nothing interesting happening here. 
where do I go next? Uh, and you know, hopefully where we decided to go next was still interesting. Do you ever feel a couple of things? Do you ever feel like, uh, and maybe it's part of science, but do you ever feel like you're doing all this stuff and then you get to the end, you're like, like you said, well, I guess that's the end. Like, I just feel like there, there should be like, it's a bad movie and there should be a better payoff. Yes. Yes. So my, my PhD with these fish, uh, that I mentioned, like, so all this brain chemistry stuff was changing. And so I was like, I bet fish who are infected by these parasites are also like more active and less social. And like, I had all of these predictions and at the end of five years, the answer was <laughs> nah. That's so, that's so <laughs> long. That's, that's such a long movie with no payoff. <laughs> but like i mean the important thing in like no no is an answer it's not the answer you wanted but in science as long as you like i had done a big enough experiment that i'm sure the answer is no Mm -hmm. uh and you know the the best you can ask for in science is a clear answer and the clear answer is you wasted five years (laughs) but you know it's it's all right it was a clear answer and now i moved on to something else sure uh, in, yeah. in space, you, you talked about space radiation and I feel like anytime someone puts the word space in front of something, it's made, like, it sounds made up like space rocks, space water, space radiation, space force, like all these things are, it seems make-believe and I, I'm obviously it's not, like I said, with space radiation, it just doesn't sound like something that exists, but it just, it, it's because you, you're saying this book that there's there, you thought we, we are so far along and we're not. Uh, maybe that's part of it too. Maybe because we don't know all this stuff, it sounds make-believe. I mean, when you, I'm sure when you first told people about this wasp that eats, that has to eat its host through its head to get out, like, no, that's, that doesn't exist. What are you crazy? You know, so all these things, it just, it just seems like um, it's pretend until, until people actually like do things. Yeah. Yeah. So one, I totally agree with you. And two, it's weird, like space, I think whenever anything happens in space, people automatically think it's like way more epic than it really is. So there, there was like this story. So we were, uh, the first space station that America put up was called Skylab. And there's this story that the third crew mutinied and mutiny is like a really serious word. Like on this, it means that you are like, we're not listening anymore. We're doing our own thing. You completely like stop paying attention to, you know, the people who are supposed to be in control. But what really happened was that the crew felt like they were being kind of overworked. So they scheduled a call with ground control to be like, can we back off on some things a little bit? And that was it. And this got called a mutiny. Like everything everything in space is like blown way out of proportion. Uh, and I think we all just find space to be like maybe way more fascinating than it has any right to be. Like the astronauts say that like every time we read tons of astronaut biographies, which for the most part are awful because they're written by engineers and they, and they, and my dad's an engineer and I love him. Uh, but like, it's tons of pages about like, well, this switch wasn't doing the thing it was supposed to. And then like a paragraph about their friend who died. And you're like, I, reverse those things i'm way more interested in the like personal stories i don't care about the switch um but anyway where was i going with oh so apparently in astronaut biographies everybody they they report that every time somebody has a chance to ask them a question they want to know about how you go to the bathroom in space sure and like all of these details that most people don't care about when it happens in space suddenly everybody really cares about it uh, and, and so, yeah, I think it's a combination of, it does sound like fiction. And also we just imagine space to be like super epic when really it's just kind of like stinky and it's just humans in a different environment. But if your research led you to, it, uh, to a chance to go up in one of those rockets that people have been going up in, would you do that? No, I don't think so. No, it does, and <laughs> so it does not seem when, appealing to when me. I, yeah. So why does it not? Yeah. Why does it not seem appealing to you? I'm terrified. That's why. Like I, I would never, uh, I would never want to do that. Um, I, I've rode roller coasters, but even those terrify me. So I just, I, I would be, I, I hate flying in airplanes. Um, so like all these things lead to me like, nah, you don't want to, you don't want to do that. Plus it's, it's also, <laughs> it's also so new. Like if someone were like, Hey, tomorrow we're going to go do this thing. I don't buy an Xbox for two years to for them to get all the the work all the bugs out i'm not going to go up in this plane and this rocket you guys just made last year yeah 
I agree on all of those points. I, I also get like motion sickness. Oh my God, and so yes. I'm sure I would, I would just be like throwing up like, so I went to go visit George. We're going to talk about George again. Uh, George in Brazil when he was teaching down there and we went mm. hang gliding. And I remember we were like up on, it seemed like a mountain. It was probably a hill, but in my head, it was like a mountain. And the guy was like attached to my back. And he's like, okay, when I count to three, we both need to run, but we can't trip. Cause if we trip, we're going to fall down the mountain. So we did, and then he was like, go. And, and it probably, it's good. He didn't give me time to think about it. But so we ran and we didn't trip. And then he was under me. And the whole time I remember thinking, I'm going to puke on his head. Oh, like, no. there's, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And like, you know, it was a beautiful view, but mostly I was thinking I need to puke. And I thought the same thing when I jumped out of a plane. What is that called? Sky, uh, skydiving. Uh, skydiving. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It both, they just make me sick. Yeah. And so I think I would, I'd go up there and I would just puke on everyone and it, nobody would want me there. You're just uh, floating around. What's worse, space puke or space radiation? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think there are problems on different scales. You eventually stop puking and then the radiation problem kicks in. And there, there's a, I, I have no desire to go to, if somebody said like, would you like to be one of the first people to live on it on the moon? Absolutely not. No. It's no. like, for, yeah, for the safety reasons you noted. And then also there's like, I really like trying to discover new wasps. There's like no new wasp species <laughs> to be discovered on the moon. And like, I don't, I don't it, ha- it holds no appeal to me. You know, as I got older, all the uh, motion sickness really like amped up. It, it always used to be there a little bit, but it really amped up. Uh, and it really came to a head about three years ago when we went to Disney World for the first time, took our kids, and we rode um, uh, Mission to Mars, I think. Um, and basically what it is, is you uh, feel like you're in a rocket, but it's just because you're spinning so fast. And we got off that ride. Uh, well, first of all, you can pick two tracks. One that's one that's uh, less intense and one that's more intense. We're like, well, how intense can this be? So we took our kids on it. My daughter, we started spinning. She was freaking out a little bit. And I was too. But as a parent, you got to be cool. So I was like holding her hand. Yeah. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. We'll get through it. It's fun. Blah, blah, blah. We got off. My wife and I had to sit down for like 20 minutes. We didn't throw up, <laughs> but we could not move anywhere. I felt so bad and when we went this past christmas we're like we're definitely not doing that right it's gonna ruin our vacation yeah yeah you know i it's same it gets it gets worse for me too as i like we live uh in the country and even now when we go down country roads i'm like (laughs) oh i kind of feel like i'm gonna (laughs) and the last time i went to cedar point i went around one of the curves on one of the rides and i was like "Woo!" i passed out no way yeah, I blacked wow. out around one of the corners and I was like, how oh, I'm like a million years old. I used to love, you know, the mantis or whatever trip. And now I pass out down around the corners and getting old is a bummer. Sure, yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well, Kelly, I won't, I won't, we, I said an hour, so I won't, we won't go too much, but um, we, we spent uh, probably only 20 minutes talking about actually what you do. Um, because it's the first time I'm talking to you for this podcast, so I want all that beginning information. So at some point, um, even if it's during this process of this new book or some other things you're doing, uh, it'd be great to have you back on to talk more about things and um, to get more in depth in, in some of that stuff. We didn't, we talked about the fish a little bit, but I'm sure there's more there too. Um, so eventually, I, I, you know, I'll have you back on. I think I think it's cool, and and this is one of the podcasts where I'm like, man, I wish more. I wish this thing was more popular because this is a really good podcast. There's a lot of information and, and a lot of cool things that that I think people would would uh, like. Yeah. So first of all, I can't believe it's been an hour. When you said I won't, don't want to keep you for more than an hour, I looked at my watch and like I can't believe it's already been an hour. This yeah. was a lot of fun, yeah. and I really enjoyed listening to your interview with Jake. So uh, oh, nice. and you. yeah, this is a super fun podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I had fun and I'd be happy to come back on and talk about my parasites uh, whenever you'd like. Oh, one thing. And I forgot because it's so new. I just did. I just did it this last episode, but I'm doing a thing. I listened to this new podcast. It's a learning leaders podcast. And this particular guest, he was saying, um, like, you spend so much time at work. You have to, you have to find something you love about work to, to help you get there, you know, because you wake up in the morning. You can't. My dad worked at a factory for 30 years and he hated his job and and I never wanted to be like that. So I wanted to find something I, I love to do. And the new question I'm asking people at the end of the podcast is, um, what, do, what is something you love about your job 
that that you that every morning you wake up uh, or maybe uh not every morning but uh, more times than not you're like oh i get to do this thing today or i get to talk to this person or i'm doing this present like what is something you love about about what you do so i love that like so with, with this wasp for example this is you know may, maybe the wasp isn't going to cure cancer but it's a thing that nobody knew about before mm-hmm. and we were able to like explain it to people and there were a bunch of you know, people who got excited about it. And like, we've added to the knowledge in the world in some way. And so, and like, when I have a data set in front of me, you know, I'll pull up an Excel sheet and Excel is really boring. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's answers to like things that are happening in the world that people don't know about yet that we might be able to figure out, you know, from the data in that spreadsheet. So the fact that there's things about the world that my collaborators and I might be able to figure out that we didn't know before, and we'll kind of know after we finish our work is really exciting to me. Just the the fact that we can bring some new knowledge into the world and sort of understand something better that we didn't understand before. To me, that's pretty exciting. Uh, and I just, you know, I get to look at pretty wasps all day. That's really fun. What about you? <laughs> what do I love? So I work for the Toledo Metro Parks. Um, I've been there less, a little, uh, it's coming up on two years. And um, one of the things I didn't know I liked until a few months ago and it makes sense because I coach, I've been coaching football for 10 years is I like staff development. Um, and it's some, and I've been working with our staff development manager on coming up with new things and things that I can do to, to help our organization. And it made sense to me after like just last week, I go, I like staff development because I'm developing employees to be better or to get things that they want to do. It's the same thing with football players. Like I, we, I help develop these players to be better football players or better men uh, better people in general like so so it made sense mm-hmm. that i would gravitate towards this this part of of my job and it's fun because i it gets me to talk to people and that's obviously that's, i do this podcast but it, i like talking to people and finding things out like what do you and i asked i asked my guys at work i have two full-time guys i i asked them it's like what do you love about this job like what do you want to do or where do you want to go do you are you in your position or do you want to keep going and, and if you want to keep going up i'll help you do that even if it even if i risk losing you uh, we can't be afraid as an organization to lose people um otherwise we're not going to develop them, them the way we you know the way that they want to be developed so that's the part i like i like being able to develop people and help them reach you know where they want to be ultimately that sounds awesome yeah yeah I, I never thought i'd be in staff development or hr or anything like that but it's 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 the people part of it that i like not so much the paperwork uh, i don't think really anybody likes paperwork <laughs> Uh, maybe a scientist. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 no. What if you had told me that I'd be like sorting through fish brains when I was 16, <laughs> I would have been like super depressed about my future prospects. So, you know, you never know where you're going to end up and what's yeah. going to, you know, make you feel fulfilled at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kelly, uh, thanks again for, for coming on the podcast. This was awesome. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll be reaching out again at some point to, to learn more, more science from me. It was great. Great. Thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. It was great talking to you. You asked great questions. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for checking out this episode of the Nerdball podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're hearing this on any of the podcatchers on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. We're kind of coming at you two times a week now, audio and video. Check us out on all the social medias. Just search the Nerdball podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we're out there. Uh, Gmail is thenerdballpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to shoot us an email, we'd be happy to get back to you. Thanks to Real JP Multimedia, Cuttlefish Graphics, Perrysburg Junior High STEM Lab, and Big Daddy Graphics for helping out the podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.